0: You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.
1: All right. Good evening, everyone. My name is Heather McCallum, and I'm the chair of Housing Choices Australia. It gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the Housing Choices Australia 2020 Oswald Barnett Oration. Firstly, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land upon which we meet and to pay my respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be here with us this evening. We are thrilled to see such an enthusiastic response to this year's 2020 Oswald Barnett Oration. Such an incredible turnout demonstrates our collective commitment to this important issue. Thank you particularly to Naomi Milgram and director and staff of this beautiful, beautiful Glenn Murcutt designed M Pavilion. Welcome to our incredible lineup of panelists with my back towards them, I'm sorry about that. They are all leaders in their field, all from different sectors and all with different perspectives, but them, like all of you, believe in and are committed to ensuring that everyone living in this city has access to safe and affordable housing, but particularly with a focus on our most vulnerable. With such a panel, we are assured of a thought-provoking, challenging, and hopefully entertaining um, evening's conversation. So, without further delay, let me introduce our moderator of tonight's panel discussion, Peter Mars. (laughs) Peter is lead moderator with the Kronlana Institute for Ethical Leadership in Australia, which encourages wise and courageous leadership in Australia. Peter has also more than 30 years' experience as a journalist, broadcaster, and foreign correspondent. Um, he is a contributor, regular um, a regular contributor to Inside Magazine and has written three books, including most recently, No Place Like Home: Repairing Australia's Housing Crisis. So with, us, with such experience and insight, Peter is ideally placed to be leading tonight's panel discussion. So please again join me in welcoming Peter as our moderator.
2: Thank you very much, Heather, and at uh, the back, if you can't hear, let us know, stick your hands up and I'll make sure people put the microphone closer or yell or something like that. It's great to see such a good turnout. Thank you, Heather, and thank you to Housing Choices Australia for inviting me to facilitate the 2020 Oswald Barnett Oration. So, as you can see, we're stretching the definition of oration to include panel discussion. Uh, and what a panel it is, with uh, representatives from all three tiers of government and from the private sector and the not-for-profit sector. So, I'll briefly introduce our panelists. The Honourable Richard Wynne, MP, the Minister for Planning, Victorian Minister for Planning, Housing and Multicultural Affairs. The Lord Mayor of the City of Melbourne, Sally Capp. Cressida Wall, Victorian Executive Director of the Property Council of Australia. Nathan Dalbon who is uh, the CEO of the National Housing Finance and Investment Corporation, normally known as NIFIC, set up by the federal government in 2018 to improve affordable housing outcomes. And our host, if you like, Michael Lennon, Managing Director of Housing Choices Australia, one of Australia's largest community housing providers. Please join, make them welcome. Now, this isn't Q&A, so unfortunately, you're not going to get to ask questions, and I apologise for that, but you realise Q&A is heavily curated. They don't just do random questions. They're all selected in advance. You can participate, however, uh, through social media to your legions of followers, Twitter, Instagram, whatever else has been come up with in the last few hours. Use the hashtags OBO2020, as in Oswald Barnett Oration 2020, or MPavilion. M Pavilion, all one word, and Pavilion, as I discovered, only has one L. So I'll engage our panelists in just a moment, but I want to frame and focus our discussion. Oswald Barnett, who we honour with this event, was an accountant, an active Methodist, and a committed housing reformer. He was instrumental in pushing for the establishment of the Victorian Housing Commission in 1938 and served as its first vice chair. Barnett was committed to providing decent, secure, affordable housing for Victorians on the lowest rungs of the income ladder. And so that is our focus too. And by low income, I mean the bottom 40% of households by income. There are many other housing topics we could talk about. We could talk about building for a warming climate. We could talk about boosting home ownership rates. We could talk about the links between housing and economic productivity. All important, all relevant but we're going to focus on affordable and social housing. And so we're on the same page. I'm going to say what I mean by those terms. Affordable. Affordable housing is housing offered at a significant discount to market. So rent may be set at, say, 75% of the rent that might be achieved um, commercially. Affordable housing is often aimed at low-wage earners. Think of childcare workers, aged care assistants, retail, hospitality staff. Social housing is different. In social housing, tenants pay a fixed proportion of their income in rent, generally 30% or less. And most social housing tenants rely on some form of government payments like a pension. And social housing might be public housing provided by the state government or it could be community housing provided by not-for-profit like Housing Choices Australia. But back to Oswald Barnett. The philosopher Bertrand Russell supposedly said that the mark of a civilized person is the ability to look at a column of numbers and weep. Now, Russell didn't really say that, but he said something like it, and the quote is better than the original. And I think that Oswald Barnett was such a civilised person. If he didn't weep over statistics, then perhaps he raged over them. And quite certainly, he would have said, this is terrible, we must do something. So I'm going to start with a few statistics for us to, to make us weep or rage or hopefully do something. Half of all low-income tenants in Victoria's private rental market, is actually 49.6%, but let's say half, that's around 136,000 households spend 30% or more of their income on rent. It's often much more. So generally in Australia, one in five low-income renters spent 50% of their household income or rent, on rent or more. And that means growing levels of rental stress, tenants skimping on essentials like heating, cooling, healthy food, pharmaceuticals and so on. As of December, there were more than 44,000 applications for social housing on the Victorian Housing Register, representing more than 80,000 people of whom a third are children. And more than half of those applications are categorised as priority access, meaning people applying are either homeless, escaping family violence, have a disability or other significant support or special housing need. Victoria spends less per person on social housing than any other state or territory, a little more than half of what they spend in New South Wales. There are fewer ho- social housing dwellings in Victoria today than there were in 2010. Yet in the decades since, the state's population has increased by well over a million people. So I'm going to begin by asking our panel to respond to uh, this question, why is Victoria doing so badly at providing secure, affordable housing for people on low incomes in the way Oswald Barnett hoped that we might. So, Cressida, I'm going to start with you.
3: Well, obviously, there has been a dramatic historical underspend here by government, um, and it is challenging to prioritise the funding to uh, address that, and it's been obviously challenging for successive governments to find the money for social housing, which has flowed onto affordability. Because uh, you know, there's there's movement between those two categories obviously and there's overflow. I think we're also obviously in a period of unprecedented economic growth in Australia up to uh, in the property market. And so we've had these huge rises in um, house prices, which for many have been, um, you know, fantastic. We've seen this as a boom, but it hasn't been a boom for everybody. Um, and that is why we, we now have this huge challenge. Our, we're, we're seeing huge population growth every year, particularly in Victoria and um, we are just not meeting that demand with supply.
2: Okay, thank you, Cressida. Lord Mayor, Sally Cap.
0: Well, uh, it's an interesting question. I'm more of a glass-half-full person, so if we turn the question around a little bit, it's really what can we do to uh, address what over many decades has uh, become an issue. Uh, Incremental, if you like, uh, creeping up on us over 40, 50 years... And everyone's been involved in getting us to this point. So everyone needs to be involved in uh, positive progress uh, to making a difference on this issue. Uh, I also think uh, we need to have a mind flip on so many of these issues. We call it social housing and affordable Housing, But we know that for every dollar spent on housing, it's worth $3 of economic value to our community. If we called it economic housing, would we get a different response from everyone from the private sector through to government agencies, not-for-profits? It's got to be a mind flip on how we prioritise housing. And what I find is amazing, particularly in the time that I've been Lord Mayor, is that when I talk around and... Uh, walk around and talk to so many stakeholders, we have the same vision for our city and our suburbs, a vision where uh, everyone has an opportunity to live, to find work, be educated, be healthy, and so much of that vision is predicated on housing and yet we find it so difficult to find common ways of delivering it. We know that if we have... Housing then people can have jobs jobs drive productivity productivity drives uh, Wealth in the community impacts land values so right along the spectrum from government to private sector. There's benefit and Yet for so long now we've pointed the fingers at each other uh, That it's somebody else's responsibility, and I think everyone here tonight uh, if we're interested in this topic, we've also got to make a joint commitment to the outcome and we need to start talking about what that is. We all have a role to play.
2: Thank you, Lord Mayor. Nathan Dalbon from NIFIC. Uh, thank you. Uh, I guess
4: being in Melbourne, it's obviously New South Wales' fault that there are problems uh, in, in, uh, in, in Victoria. But um, in all seriousness... Um, I guess from a national perspective um, what we see in Victoria is also playing out across Australia. It's not just a Victoria problem to be fair um, to uh, policymakers here. Um, and what's required is not just a response at uh, local government, state government, there's also a role I think for the Commonwealth to play. And I guess that um, feeds into why NIFIC, uh, apologies for the, uh, the long title, exists. Um, we're we're very much you know early days in terms of getting started, but for me, uh, there there has been a chronic underinvestment um, you know with respect to uh, social uh, and affordable housing uh, in Australia. But it's not the only it's not the only uh, um, explanation for why we're seeing this um, uh, huge um, uh, under supply. I think also when we look at planning, when we look at zoning. Um, the uh, population, there's a whole range of factors, which tax, is... Tax? Tax settings? Uh... Want to go there? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll leave that one alone, <laughs> I think. Um, I'll but... go there, <laughs> <For> but later. <laughs> but, you know, we, we have to... I think there's a shared vision, as the uh, Lord Mayor was saying. Um, it's a question of how we, how we fix the problem. More money is, is obviously part of that. Uh, as I say, there are planning, zoning, but there's also using the existing funding in a more effective way. Um, And we see plenty of opportunities through cooperation with different levels of government, uh, with community housing providers, with the private sector to unlock a lot more
2: supply going forward. Thanks Nathan. Michael Lennon from Housing Choices Australia.
5: These issues are complicated, but at the essence there are two central components. One is under resourcing. A fatal mistake was made in 2009-10 when the National Affordable Housing Agreement replaced the CSHA. At that point, as part of new federalism, um, the federal government took away the matching requirements of states and territories. So, leaving aside Victoria, not a single state and and territory in Australia kept up its matching arrangements. What that has done has crippled the internal financing of public housing, meaning that aged assets that were built up in the post-war era, now 60 and 70 years old, have huge capital requirements of their own and huge replacement requirements. In parallel with that, of course, we have unparalleled population growth. And it's not only business migrants, we've got people coming from other places. So we face demand pressures we've never had. So um, underinvestment in Victoria, but underinvestment across Australia, and the wrong signals sent in federal state agreements. And what that meant was within places like Victoria, Other priorities came first, so transport, education, health, it's not as if nothing was done, but somehow we lost the will and the determination to assert that priority which had lasted for a generation before. I think secondly, um, the opportunity for us to grab on to new models and to diversify the range of responses has not been taken up in any jurisdiction. So I'm hopeful that in this next period we can uh, support the Minister, we can support the government because this is now a long-term structural problem and it needs a long-term plan.
2: Okay, thank you. Minister, I'm giving you the
6: last word on this particular question. Oh, well, thank you very much. Um, I I just wanted to start firstly by um, really harking back to Oswald Barnett because uh, if you think about a housing reformer like Barnett and indeed the the commencement of the uh, Housing Commission. It was about housing working people. Uh, our, our public housing system actually housed people who worked. Uh, and if you look at the very early work of the Brotherhood of St Lawrence who did some of the first uh, research into who was living in public housing, it was a very interesting uh, publication called High Living uh, where they looked at people living in our high-rise towers, everybody worked. Uh, people do not work in our public housing system any longer. We are virtually completely dependent for about 90% of the people living in public housing are uh, on some form of statutory benefit. Uh, and that, as, uh, uh, as we've already heard from Michael, I mean, is a significant structural problem for the public housing system. Uh, I can give you a long laundry list of stuff that we're doing, but I just wanted to kind of uh, really start my proposition uh, to say to everybody here tonight, many people I've worked with for a very, very long time, I'll never give up. I'll never give up on the public housing system. I'll never give up on the social housing system uh, because that's the reason why I'm in the business of government and that's why I'm so pleased to be uh, the Minister for Planning and Housing because it offers a very unique opportunity for us to use the planning system uh, and what that offers uh, to us to work in partnership with the City of Melbourne. And I wanna call out the Lord Mayor, particularly for her leadership uh, in putting homelessness in particular uh, on the agenda of local government. And what she's put together with a whole bunch of other councils, I think is a really exciting opportunity for us to partner together. Uh, I completely agree with Michael in relation to the Commonwealth State Housing Agreement Uh, NIFIC is great. Uh, NIFIC has got some really great opportunities to partner with us. But those of us who've been involved in this game for any length of time would look back and say, actually, what was wrong with the Commonwealth State Housing Agreement? It actually actually ensured that both parties uh, were up to the mark in terms of their commitment. $2 from the Commonwealth, $1 from the state government, uh, and, of course, specialist services around homelessness and so forth. I'll finish with this. Uh, our government uh, is deeply committed to ensuring uh, that we provide the appropriate resources, particularly as you know, the Royal Commission into Family Violence. What's at the center of that, of course, is, uh, is a direct relationship with housing, safe, affordable, secure housing for women and children escaping family violence, and of course now, uh, the Mental Health Royal Commission. And we know, all of us know, that if you want to get people uh, back to good health, uh, it's not just the immediate crisis intervention, it's what you do with people afterwards and uh, housing has to be central to that response. The government is completely aware of this. We absolutely understand this and we are committed uh, through both the, uh, both the Family Violence Royal Commission and indeed the Mental Health Royal Commission to having a substantive uh, response uh, to housing and homelessness more generally.
2: Okay, I want to pick up on some of the issues that came up in those responses. And I'm going to start with public housing. Public housing is in a, you might say, a death spiral, terminal decline. As as you said, Minister, 90% plus, 90, more than 90% of residents are on some sort of statutory benefit. So they're not paying rents that will enable the upkeep of those buildings. They're, as Michael said, they're 60, 70 years old. They're not fit for purpose. They're family housing that are now increasingly needing to accommodate single people, people with disabilities of all different kinds. So we built in the post-war period, thanks to people like Oswald Barnett, we built large amounts of public housing in states and territories. Why can't we do that now? We're a much richer society, a much wealthier society, and as long as as it continues in the way it is, public housing becomes increasingly stigmatised, uh, it becomes increasingly hard to build because everyone says, I don't want it near me uh, because, you know, they're troublesome tenants and so on. So why can't we do what we did so successfully in the post-war period? Anyone can answer this question.
5: I would start by saying that a well-run, properly, and adequately financed public housing system is the best way to deal with social housing demand. Those two tests have defied almost every state and territory in the last 30 years. So Ben Rimmer, who is here tonight, has just been given the new role um, of uh, the new position as director of housing and faces a massive challenge in coming to terms with 30 years of structural problems. Can I say, uh, from my perspective, that it is not feasible for public housing to be retained in its current form unless we are prepared to dramatically change the funding envelope within which it operates, both recurrent and capital requirements. Now, to give you some simple figures, and the minister is aware of this, in order to retain our current lowest proportion of non-market social housing stock in Victoria, we need now to commit to 3,000 new dwellings in each of the next 10 years just to stay where we are. To recover to a national average, we have to produce something like four and a half thousand. Michael, how how many? 243 is the average in the last three years. We are mountainous steps away. So therefore, we need to both find a way to address the capital requirements and operational requirements of of public housing. And if the appetite and ability of governments to fund uh, new capital for extensions of social housing stock isn't there, then we have to find non-government means of raising money. So private finance can help, and it can be more efficient, and it can be cheaper. But there's a simple point. Subsidized housing needs subsidy. And we can put all the regulatory systems around it, and we can talk about superannuation funds, and we can talk about yield gaps, but you have to put in because the rent model will never pay For more than the operations of the system, capital needs a subsidy.
2: Minister, you wanted to jump in on this issue too, or you're just nodding in agreement?
6: (laughs) Clearly. um, It's a tennis match. uh, Well, it's not meant to be a tennis match. It should be a conversation. Um, I think that, uh, I mean, there's nothing that Michael says that, of course, I don't agree with. Um, uh, But I, I go back to my earlier point. Uh, and people will go, oh, well, you're going to build a thousand, a thousand's not enough. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's our initial commitment of $209 million that we will, build, we will build the thousand houses that we said we'd build. We will partner uh, with people uh, uh, to look at redevelopments, uh, particularly of some of our worst uh, concrete um, walk-up stock, which is Michael knows very well, and we're partnering with him and various other uh, significant social housing providers. Uh, and we'll have some very significant announcements to make about uh, many of these very large uh, uh, estates which go back to the time of Oswald Barnett and the slum reclamation program uh, where there's three and four storey concrete walk-ups well past there used by date uh, will be redeveloped uh, and we will be ensuring not only that we get uh, redeveloped on the public housing but we, that we get more public housing uh, in those uh, developments as well, so that's above and beyond a thousand units. Okay,
2: and I'm. Someone there. clapped. <laughs> so, someone clapped, but
6: <laughs> there is. Oh, it, it was me, old mate Paul Madden, wasn't it? Let, 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 Good on you, Paul. So, so we a couple of mates here, I think, still. So uh, uh, the uplift
2: you've promised is about 10%, which some people uh, might no, be no, right. No, no, no. Okay,
6: but let let all right. No, no, no I have to correct that. Uh, I'm now the minister for housing. Uh, the uplift will be more than 10%. It will be significantly more than... So not just replacement... Can you give us a figure? Uh, No, we'll announce it, uh, but it'll be... You can announce it now.
2: No. (laughs) We'll announce it... How much? Significantly more than 10%? Uh, Significantly more than 10%. (laughs) Okay, all right. Thank you. Let's, Let's come to the... What about the role of local government in this, Lord Mayor?
0: Well, we do have a role to play and we're completely up for it. Uh, we know that uh, in most cases we have a facilitation role around uh, these sorts of projects, but I think there's a, a bigger uh, challenge that's really ahead of us. And and we live in a world where institutions, not just government but major institutions, were at the lowest levels of trust by public in a long time. And when we see uh, some of these projects announced, the uh, tidal wave of cynicism and scorn. Uh, and, uh, and criticism that comes uh, back around these projects, particularly projects where we're looking to establish JVs with private sector to be able to deliver at a pace. We know that to deliver at scale, at pace, with the pressure of population growth, we have to work better together. Tiers of government and government with private sector and uh, appropriate agencies. But we seem to be missing... Uh, trusted, most boring word in the dictionary, I'm sure, is governance. If somebody can come up with a more exciting word for governance, it'd be great. But we need to come up with some great governance models that builds confidence of the participants to actually deliver on what we want because we've got the same outcome. Everybody up here tonight is saying the same thing, even the private sector. And, uh, And so we know we want to get there, but without effective governance models that let's... Uh, the authority or the uh, special purpose vehicle or whatever we want to call it get on with delivering and can effectively build up the confidence of the community, uh, then uh, without that I really worry about our ability to do this at scale, at pace, even with all of the money. The scorn that comes and the uh, the consistent questioning and eroding of confidence in projects where we need all those parties to work together is something we've got to overcome.
2: If the money was there, it might help overcome some of that, though. <laughs> Cressida, well, what about the, the private sector and its role in this? I mean, you're not in the business of providing subsidised housing, right? Your, your members are there to, to generate profit, return to shareholders and so on. So what, what role can business play? Or do you think the market, if it was appropriately set, could deliver the sort of housing that people on the lowest incomes need?
3: Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I mean, the property industry um, has large community uh, service um, commitments that they do every day. They're a very progressive industry in, in many ways. But you're right, they're not in charge of this. Primary responsibility runs with government. And, but we, do, we would say this. Um, the minister doesn't have an infinite budget, and we all respect that. You know, it's 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 easy for us to say here tonight. You know, there's been this undersupply, and that that should be addressed immediately. But actually, delivering that is very difficult, and we have to look at how we get the most bang for our buck. And what that means is, um, we have to look at density in a different way. Um, you know, Victoria, Melbourneians only three point one percent of them live in um, densities of more um, of. Uh, let me just get, of over 100 people per hectare. That's only 145,000 people in Victoria who are living in high-density locations. And if you look at some of the social housing that was built historically, it just wouldn't be approved today if it was not social housing. Um, you know, So the, the way the community thinks about density is it has to be challenged, and we have to look at that um, as a government. How can we get more into our communities in a way that... Um, that is still, you know, has good design standards, it's still creating great places. um, And, but actually we have to have a a mind shift there because we can't allow some suburbs to be um, stuck in amber like the mosquitoes in Jurassic Park. You know, there has to be changes. If you look at um, other cities, Even Sydney has uh, density levels of 13.1% of people are living in in areas with more than 100 people per hectare. You know, we are way out of step and the the expectations of people around those local communities are not commensurate with the challenge that's facing us. If we want to get bang for our buck, we have to change our mindset about density and we have to create more supply.
0: I think on the financing side, when I talk to the private sector, they will say back to us as a local government, we have so much capital available for projects? How do we give you that capital? And of course, a return is needed. I mean, great for Nathan to pick up this topic because even with NIFIC, a return of some sort is needed. If we can understand that and start to communicate that effectively so that everybody, all of the stakeholders, understands the value they're getting and we deliver on that to build up that confidence, surely we can do it. But the capital is there.
2: So, Nathan, let's turn to the role of NIFIC because, I mean, we we all... Anyone in, in housing talks about this great dream of tapping those trillions of dollars in our superannuation funds and flowing that into the construction of social and affordable housing. But As Michael said, the numbers don't stack up. You know, we're investing in Canadian social housing, we're investing in Australia, US social housing, we're not investing in Australian social housing apart from one or two very small projects. So what needs to happen, Nathan, for the money to be there through NIFIC, say, for um, our, our superannuation money to, to flow through to community housing providers like, like Housing Choices Australia? Um, well, there are a lot of factors. Um, I, I guess uh, when you look
4: at, say, NIFIC's bonds, one thing that um, a lot of people don't realise is that Superfund uh, money is already flowing into the CHP sector. So our first two bond issuances... Uh, we had CBUS and we had Unisuper purchasing our bonds. Um, The second bond, their rate of return is just over 1.5%. So uh, they have said to us they want to put in a lot more funds um, into the CHP sector. The problem is on the other side in terms of the demand from the CHP sector because of the revenue
2: uh, gap that um, Michael's highlighted. Yeah, so, so, and I just want to... Most So so there have been a bunch of NIFIC bonds, and as you say, super money's gone into them. But most of those bonds have been to organisations like Michael to enable them to refinance their existing loans, which saves, you know, so from something about 4% to something below closer to 3%, saves you a lot of money every year, but it's not actually funding for new housing. I know there is some funding for new housing, but most of it is refinancing, right? Most of
4: it, but there's been over 1,000 new properties that have been supported by NIFIC financing to date.
6: And, and it's fed... Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I mean, I opened uh, for First State Super. Uh, they are one of the first uh, early starters uh, in relation to uh, supporting, you know, what, what people categorise as key worker housing. So First State is a superannuation fund that deals with... ..that essentially is for um, health workers. Uh, and uh, they uh, intervened uh, and brought... Uh, 100 properties over in Mooney Ponds that people may be aware of. Uh, half of those properties are being rented to First um, uh, uh, State Super members First State Super members at uh, I think it's 75% of the market uh, so that uh, for instance a one bedroom unit there for a nurse uh, uh, beautifully done, beautiful units $365 a week. Well that's that's pretty good, uh, and a three-bedroom at, uh, I think, uh, for uh, key workers. And in that case, I think it was about a bit over $500 a week. So it, it's we, we should not characterise that superannuation funds are not coming in. They are coming in, and First State Super was one of the early uh, early starters in that. And we know uh, that a lot of the superannuation funds are absolutely looking, particularly at the social housing sector, because in many respects they didn't understand it, Then they... I mean, and the social housing sector has, in fact, matured, um, and you know, through leadership of people like Michael, to become you know very, very significant players in the market. And people now have a level of confidence uh, in the scale of them, uh, in the ma- and in the management of it, and indeed the governance of them, to feel confident uh, to invest what is workers' money.
2: So, Michael, if, let, let's look at the numbers here. If you invest, if if so, if uh, housing Choices Australia was building key worker housing, as the minister calls it. So housing for people on, we're talking $50,000 type incomes. Does that stack up for you? Can you, can you borrow at, at uh, effective rates through NIFIC with fund money
5: and pay a return for key workers? Um, not, no, the, the short answer is no. But the minister is right that there are two roles that are emerging for the super funds. One, as purchasers of bonds. And long-term um, exposure to a new asset class, and that is occurring. In there, uh, there is a big appetite. But to your question, is it possible that they can get a benchmark return for affordable or social housing on its own? The answer is no. So,
2: so not even afford. So, if we distinguish uh, the affordable, 75% of market rent.
5: That wouldn't stack up even without the social. Uh, and there are people, um, there's Therese and Viraj and um, Rob Hudson are here. We know the figures. Um, so for deep subsidy for long-term social housing uh, renters, the subsidy is somewhere between nineteen and 21000 dollars for affordable housing. Annually per per household. Over the debt period. Oh, in I, order that I, the debt can be repaid over a twenty-five year period, for um, cohort seventy-five percent of market rent that the annual subsidy required is somewhere between 14 dollars and $16,000. We know that because the Social Housing Growth Fund, which was meant to be experimental, has now showed us what the models can and can't do. And, we, and on that base, we have a platform on which we can do much bigger things. So I think we've moved on from saying that the super funds or institutional investors are, can provide a kind of magic bullet. They can participate and now will, but the triage of financial components has to be there. It has to be the, um, the income that's derived through rent, um, the debt that's raised efficiently and cheaper through NIFIC, and the third component, the third leg of the stool, is the operating subsidy designed for particular cohorts. And I think we can now build models on that basis at scale, both for public housing renewal and for new stock. So the issue
2: then is, is the funding that, that would enable that scaling up. Yeah, a little bit.
0: I was just going to say, I mean, one of the other big issues and barriers is actually the cost of the land uh, and we come across that all the time. If there are ways that we can... Uh, um, OK... Uh, if there are ways that we can, <laughs> no, deal with the, with, deal with the, yeah, deal with the uh, the cost of the land, then that would be fantastic. Obviously, it either comes to different incentives through the model or it comes to uh, contributions uh, in other ways. But from, you asked me a question before, I didn't really answer it. I've been a politician for too long, Peter. Uh, but what can local governments do? One of the things we've been doing is taking... Uh, land that we own and I was sort of thinking we probably owned a lot of land but we don't nearly own enough. But uh, the examples, for example, at the Munro site at uh, Queen Victoria Market and the Boyd site in Southbank just down here uh, where we've included 15% affordable housing in the projects uh, and in those projects we've had to factor in uh, the cost of that land to the developer, the fact that they need to be able to make a return from it the delivery of not just affordable housing but other community infrastructure that's really important uh, to make sure we do have flourishing communities that we don't end up with with ghettos uh, of uh, certain types of people within our uh, demographics and all of those things have to be factored in. But uh, looking at a combination of responses I think is really important because it won't all be one way. So if we can... Uh, look at what the loss is and uh, sorry that the, the um, target is. one of the big things we've done with the help of SGS economics uh, is look at what is the target for uh, affordable and social housing in the city of Melbourne. and we know that today we are 5,500 affordable rental homes short and on current population growth uh, by 2036 we will be 23,200 affordable homes short. And that is the target that we need to be working towards. And to achieve those numbers, it's not going to be one answer. It's going to be a number of responses. What can local government do around putting land in, planning, acceleration, other ways in which we can make the process a little bit cheaper so there might be a bit more return for the developer at the end of the day? Uh, what can the state government do uh, around incentives, land, etc.? All of those conversations are happening. How do we get the private sector and Commonwealth government involved so that Michael actually has more homes than every other organisation here tonight to be able to uh, provide to those key workers and those in need? It's got to be more than one.
2: So I, clearly we need a range of different measures uh, to, to, to come together. One of the ones that's under discussion, I think under active contemplation, I could say, is the idea of inclusionary zoning. I know that the City of Melbourne in its submission to uh, the state government inquiry recommended inclusionary zoning. Yeah. Um, So, but I want to start with you, Cressida Wall, because I think the property council is not, so so let me just, inclusionary zoning would mean that in any new development, a certain amount of that development, certain number of units, certain proportion of that development would have to be social and or affordable housing. So, Cressida, what's, what's the Property Council's view on this?
3: So, just so we're clear about inclusionary zoning, um, what actually happens in, in these models, particularly in some of the ones that are currently being used by local government, is that uh, property developers are required to gift uh, a proportion of the dwellings in their apartments to, uh, to a community housing provider for free. And what that does to a project is that it makes it very challenging to um, to get the right finance uh, from the bank uh, if the project suddenly loses a percentage of the of its of its margin. Um, and what tends to happen is that either those dwellings, uh, the prices that that are given away, are passed on to the other dwellings, which means that they become more expensive, or in some cases. Uh, the, the project will not be viable financially. It, ca- it cannot get financed from the banks because they dictate the margins that are required. Um, and in some cases, and, it, and it's not that many cases, it will, it will come out of the pro- property developer's margin. But that's not, that's not actually the norm. What happens in a market economy is that those costs get, get passed on. So when we look at where this has been applied, for example in London, it, it, it seems like a panacea, but, in, but it has actually been very challenging. So in London, it has been accompanied by significant subsidies by government, huge grants, um, and sorry, pardon the pun, and um, uh, and uh, you know <laughs> subsidies for these types of dwellings, and it's also been um, it's also been accompanied by some significant challenges in supply. So it actually does cannibalise other houses, and you can see that the borough of London, for example. Um, has a significantly lower rate of build and approvals than any other place in in the UK where these these arrangements don't exist. So we know that there is plenty of data to correlate. When you add fees and charges to, to dwellings, there are fewer dwellings that are actually built. So it's not as simple as just saying the private sector should put its hand in its pocket. And we would say we definitely have a role to play and we stand ready and willing to do that. And there are lots of models and lots of different ways to do that and and lots of ways for the market to adjust. But like Sally, I completely agree with the idea that it's not not a silver bullet. There has to be an honest discussion about density and supply in the market and planning controls and what sorts of buildings that we're actually building here that, that are not... You, you know, that are still lovely places to live in, but where we look at design standards so that there's greater shared areas and perhaps slightly smaller dwellings, um, or there's, there's slightly different tweaks in the process. And the final point I will make, I will come back to tax. It's a, one data point that blows my mind is that in the green fields, when we're, when we're building new de- developments there, 25% of the cost of that dwelling is actually taxes. So if we're talking about where we spend our money, if you remove 25% of the cost of a new dwelling in the greenfields, that starts to become a very affordable dwelling. But we're not at that point yet, and that's a very difficult argument for Minister Wynn Wyn to make in government. But, you know, there are lots of different ways to, 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 to skin this cat, is what I'm saying.
2: Minister Wynne, <laughs> just on the, on the tax, because actually a lot of that is a, is a development contribution, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, houses need roads,
6: sewerage, all the rest of it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, the state, um, the state uh, has a quite a sophisticated um, regime around growth area infrastructure charges, uh, where the developer has to contribute towards you know some pretty basic infrastructure to support uh, communities in those growth areas. Uh, it's around schools, it's around childcare, it's around road networks and so forth. I mean, gone are the days when, you know, we have an urban growth boundary. We're not going to breach an urban growth boundary. That's our policy. Uh, yes, we have to release land, but we're not prepared to abandon people out there with uh, subdivisions that have got none of the basic um, the basic resources and quality of life that, that those of us who live in uh, established areas actually enjoy. That is completely unacceptable, and we believe... Uh, And I see Rob Pretland here who's uh, had a lengthy career as a developer in his own right with the Fraser Group. He knows very well just how important it is that in those, particularly in those uh, greenfield sites, that we actually get uh, quality developments that are affordable. Uh, uh, Do you want me to go to inclusionary zoning?
2: I do because I want to give you another opportunity to announce something tonight. (laughs) What what are you going to do about
5: inclusionary zoning?
6: (laughs) Great, look, all, all these people here waiting to hear. There are people who said to me, why the hell are you going to this thing tonight? And I'm now asking myself that question. We're
3: very glad you're here.
6: I'm I'm prepared to stump up. Um, uh, The government has commissioned work. uh, That's well known by many people. Uh, Jude uh, Munro, Marcus Marcus Spiller was involved in this work. I think, Michael, you were involved in this work as well, uh, where the government is considering the question of inclusionary zoning on a uh much broader basis, uh, what that looks like is something that the government is considering at the moment. Oh yeah. But the work has been done.
0: And that's great. And we think it's fantastic that this was done relatively quickly, a great group of people involved, lots of fantastic submissions and a big turnaround from our point of view. There are lots of City of Melbourne people here tonight and we put in a submission which I can talk about. Uh, that uh, for the first time uh, from our local government position actually recommended uh, mandatory inclusionary zoning. And there was a simple reason for that. And, uh, and it's been a big journey. I've been where Cressida is now. Uh, and, uh, and there was really a, a, a big realisation. It's quite simple. It's in the evidence over all of the other things that we've tried, at different levels of government to encourage and incentivise affordable housing, in the city of Melbourne, zero has been delivered. So we need to do something differently. And part of that has to be considering what will, through the mandatory nature of it, start to force some of the mind shifts that we, we need. Even if it starts at something relatively small, uh, it is a culture shift, it's a mind shift, it starts different conversations on all of the developments that we're looking at. Uh, it should be something that is shared broadly because as we said at the start, this is we're all involved in the solution to this and uh, as we share uh, that, um, I don't want to say burden, but that responsibility of contributing through mandatory inclusion rezoning, hopefully we see the momentum change on delivering affordable and social housing. I'm not so sure about public But for us, uh, that has been a big step in culture change and it's based on the evidence. We don't have enough housing and the most stressed cohort within the city of Melbourne population are renters looking for affordable homes. They're not available.
2: Not just in the city of Melbourne, yeah. Um, Michael, you wanted to Um, comment on inclusionary zoning?
5: I want to be careful because we produced a report which we've given to the minister and it's for the minister and the government to... um, deal with that report. But um, three points. Um, The planning system can make a contribution to the dearth and supply, and it can do so on the basis that, that affordable and social housing can be classed as essential economic infrastructure. That's the recommendation of Um, Infrastructure Australia, Infrastructure Victoria, and indeed Infrastructure Victoria identified it as one of three of the highest priorities in the state. Secondly, for those of you interested in the planning theory, the logic is essentially that development activity in itself produces externalities. Those externalities then get compensated by uh, planning schemes and provisions which include open space, they also include bonding for roads and for a whole range of things that are generated by the development. There is no doubt that some part of our housing crisis is caused by the scale and location and impact of development and that a contribution can be made and should be made. Having said that, um, Minister, of the panel were also very clear that the existing voluntary system, systems in the state are not working. I think you've given that an experiment. And as the Lord Mayor said, If we're looking for a a more consistent, predictable environment for investors, there has to be a set of rules that are evenly and and, uh, applied in a non-discriminatory way. So, um, the last point we would make is, I, I think that planning can make a contribution, but it can't be a substitute for effort, and it can't be the sole thing. Everyone is very conscious about the circumstances of investors, funders, financiers, and the need for a stable and clear path forward. And we are very hopeful that the minister um, gives the proposals um, due consideration.
2: Okay. I, I want to turn... I mean, one of the other challenges in the Australian context is that we do have three tiers of government. Federal, state, local, that all have a role in housing. Housing, in a way, is a bit orphanless. I mean, it, we have, we have a, a state minister, but we have all... You know, rent assistance comes from the Commonwealth. Uh, and, and, and then local governments handle planning. So there's a whole set of intersecting. So, I wanna, Nathan, I want to ask you... Um, because you sit there and you've worked in the, in the public sector in, in, in the Commonwealth. How important is this, is getting a better set of relations between the three tiers of government?
4: Um, thanks for the question. Uh, look, it's critical. Um, and I've, I've worked in, uh, spent most of my career in the Commonwealth Treasury. Uh, for those who don't know, so, and I've also observed some of the, uh, the conversations that have happened around big reforms, uh, I was involved with NDIS initially. Um, and more recently with the um the, Naha, the National Housing and Homelessness Agreement. And I think... Look, I think there's a lot of well-meaning people um, across all levels of government, but we get lost in process too often and we lose sight of outcomes. Um, and I think what I like about NIFIC um, is that we can sort of put that stuff to the side and we deal bilaterally and directly with the players... Um, and I think, you know, credit, I guess, to the, to the Commonwealth Government for coming up with a solution where we can take a more direct role. I think in the past, you know, there has been that passive role. Um, I mean, it's varied from time to time in terms of the degree of intervention, but I think some sort of sustained interest from the Commonwealth level in housing outcomes uh, makes a lot of sense, and we need to keep those relationships, build those relationships um, uh, so it just doesn't boil down to a nature of transactions. It's focused on outcomes.
2: So, so if we go back to, uh, um, Oswald Barnett, uh, and he wrote a book, um, together with, um, uh, Burt in 1942 called Housing the Australian Nation. I'm sure you could find it in the State Library. It's a great little pamphlet. And there's a, a lot of it is incredibly, uh, relevant today. But one of, I, I'm going to ask a yes, no question of everyone, um, And and that is, they started their their book with the following statement. Their starting point was, it's a part of the birthright of every citizen to enjoy decent shelter. So do we we all agree with this?
3: Yes. We've
0: all got the same vision.
2: We do. I'm not sure I heard a yes from everyone. But anyway, I I mean, in some countries this is legislated. There is a, a requirement to provide shelter. Now, whether that's a solution is another question, but I just note that in passing. Another point they, they make uh, in, the, in that little book is we need a national housing strategy. And I want to ask everyone on the panel that too. Is that, is that mi- what, one of the things, and again, it's a range of solutions we're looking for, but a national strategy that links all three tiers of government, is that m- a missing part, an important missing part of the picture?
6: I think there's no doubt about that. And uh, it goes back to Michael's earlier comments when you... You look towards when we did have a national approach uh, to housing provision, uh, and again, I simply repeat the self-evident point: there wasn't much wrong with the Commonwealth-State housing agreement, and once we moved away to a performance-based um, approach, uh, and it was it was my government, it was a it was a Labor government that moved towards that. It was a mistake. I think it was a big mistake, and one that uh, we're still paying the price for now. And uh, you know. I'm not sure this government has got an appetite for that, particularly. I mean, because it does require some fundamental structural changes, particularly around some of the most basic things. I mean, Commonwealth rent assistance has not improved for uh, in any meaningful way for probably two decades. I mean, Much like new start. Yeah, a bit like well, indeed, a bit like Newstart. and that is fundamental to people who are renting in the private rental market. I mean, uh, if you can't uh, if you can't bridge the gap between you know if you're on a low a low income. Uh, and the Commonwealth Rent Assistance, I mean, you you are in acute housing stress. But that's just one example. I mean, yes, I mean, we need a vision. Uh, I mean, and, you know, I had the honour of working with visionaries like Brian Howe, um, who was the last person, in my view, who fully understood uh, the notion of a national approach uh, to housing provision more generally. And, you know, uh, he he was my mentor, and uh, I continue... um, uh, his legacy going forward.
3: Uh, I, I mean, this is political dynamite. Honestly, we really need to have um, a vision for where we are putting this population growth. But it's very difficult for politicians to grapple with this because there's such a, um, a degree of reaction to that in the in the um, in the public uh, amongst human beings who feel stressed about having high densities. Uh, you know, people they don't know, groups they don't identify with living in their areas. But we need to tackle this problem because we have to put people somewhere and we have to be realistic about that. And I would say the state government, um, our state government, while while we would criticise them for not having set specific targets of, of how many uh, dwellings they're going to have in each locality, has done a great job at least of meeting the challenge of po- population um, growth in, in the sense that... They've put infrastructure in places where it's really required and that helps to shift the public debate. Um, When the Property Council, after the last state election, did some analysis, we found that in the electorates where there have been the highest population growth, you actually had swings to the government and that's because this government has been really thoughtful about where they put infrastructure, so they haven't had the same reactions that you've seen in New South Wales about population growth. But but it is political dynamite to deal with this and, and putting a proper structure in place is very difficult but has to be done.
0: The Council of Capital City Lord Mayors, uh, which was almost moribund, uh, has uh, become enlivened again uh, over two issues. And the first one is housing and homelessness, recognising that local governments, state governments and the federal government need to work more closely together. And so we're starting with a big advocacy. It's underway campaign to the federal government to bring them to the table to look at policy that encompasses uh, the three tiers. I know the state government's on board and, uh, and we're working hard at getting them back to the table.
2: And, and given the nature of the problem, and it's taken us decades to get into this mess, it will take us a long time to get out of it, it's going to require, this national strategy has to be bipartisan. It has to be able to survive changes of government, state and federal level. Yep, Yeah. Okay, final question to all our panellists, uh, because we're about to wrap up, we're running uh, close to time. I just want to ask each of you then a very brief answer. What are you going to do then in your current role to boost the supply of affordable and social housing for Victorians on low incomes in the next two years?
6: <laughs> Anyone can start. Oh, I think I'm a bit longer than two, we've got three, so um, before the next election. Um, One and a half I think it is by now. <laughs> no. Go on. Close to three. Um, <laughs> uh, I simply go back and point you towards some of the uh, work that the government is doing. Uh, our family violence work, uh, l- leading the country. Uh, our Royal Commission into Mental Health, fundamental to both of those is uh, the provision of safe, affordable and secure housing for people. Uh, there, are, there are a range of other initiatives that, that I and the government are actively working on in the housing space. Uh, Michael has indicated some of those, including, including uh, uh, inclusionary zoning. Uh, that is that is merely one of a range of matters that the government uh, is actively considering. The use of state government land um, is another area that is very significant. Working closely with NIFIC uh, is going to be, I think, a real opportunity for us this year, working with uh, the property council and with the development community more generally. I mean, the, this is a potentially gonna be a very significant year uh, for housing provision going forward. Uh, and my final observation I would make is that whilst we've done very well in terms of supporting the social housing sector, it is fundamental that we find a way to ensure that our public housing system uh, is viable going forward and that is uh, of a an acute concern of mine. Thank you, Minister.
0: Uh, well, we have a very comprehensive and awesome policy coming up for consideration shortly. and My team is sitting here making sure I don't say too much ahead of that, but it is great uh, to focus on some of the things that we've already made public. One is supporting mandatory inclusion rezoning which is a big deal and we all need to get on board with that. Uh, We also, as I said, have been looking at projects we can do on land we own. At the moment, that uh, uh, target has been at 15%. Is that ambitious enough? No. Uh, Well, without saying anything else, uh, do we have the right... Uh, resources and procedures and policies in place internally to be able to accelerate and support projects that come to us uh, where there is more affordable social housing, that is important. Uh, We said earlier, housing and homelessness has become the number one priority for us as a local government. Uh, We have limited levers to pull, but nonetheless, an important role that we can play in uh, helping uh, create a different future around housing. Another big role is advocacy. I do a lot of harassing. It's my number one uh, job. Uh, but I did want to just finish by touching on rough sleepers because that is uh, the extreme end of this housing situation we find ourselves in, when people are actually forced onto the streets with no other option and, uh, they are at their most vulnerable. So, as a local government, although it's not strictly our responsibility to provide, uh, emergency crisis short term accommodation, uh, together with six other municipalities, we have decided we can do something about this. It's important not just for those people experiencing rough sleeping, but for our residents, our traders, our workers, our visitors. It's an expression of who we are as a culture and a society. We look at the big homelessness numbers around Australia, 120,000 people every night classified as being uh, without appropriate housing, which in some ways seems insurmountable. In inner Melbourne, there are 350 people regularly sleeping rough where we should be doing something and we can. And so our initial focus as a local government is to step into that, again, an area we haven't traditionally done before, and say, uh, working with local government, with state government on recurrent funding, and on with the appropriate agencies and private sector to help us get there with in-kind, and Rob's helping us with that in a big way, uh, then we can actually provide 350 extra beds with support services every night for those people who are really on the extremities of this housing uh, crisis we find ourselves in. So that's our focus in the short term.
2: Thank you, President.
3: So, I, I would say great, uh, great challenges produce great ingenuity. And our industry is looking at how can we create new ways to solve this problem. Um, and and I've, I'm in a similar position to Sally, which is that I've asked my team to look at, you know, short of inclusionary zoning, and we accept that that will be part of the mix, it may be at some stage. Um, what are the other ways that we can tackle this problem? What's in the toolkit? How can we look at the constraints of building everything from materials to design to create great dwellings, you know, but also meet this challenge because it hasn't been met historically um, internationally by just inclusionary zoning, it doesn't work. You know, there are little things, like why do local governments reject the idea of studio apartments so often in in dwellings? Like our members will say, we'd love to have that. That would be very sellable, you know, and that would be very affordable for people, but they they just can't get it through local government. So there are lots of little things. It's about supply. It's about the tax base. It's about the... um, You know, it's about the the density and what we accept in our suburbs and how we actually meet those needs creatively through not always um, cost items by government, but through planning controls and through the way that we actually deliver dwellings affordably.
2: Nathan.
4: Thanks. Um, Look, I'll be very brief. Um, I think at the end of the day, I want to continue doing what, what I'm already doing and that is not talk about it, but actually deliver outcomes. We've already produced 1,000 new homes, as I said. We've saved the CHP sector $100 million. Uh, All the indirect costs that have been saved in terms of not having to refinance every three to five years by offering 10-year finance. Um, We have a research function now as well. There's an opportunity to build an evidence base to help inform decision makers. Um, I guess the challenge for us is that we have historically low interest rates. They are not going to last forever we have an opportunity to tap into that finance. We have an opportunity within the existing uh, uh, policy settings to actually deliver a lot more supply than what we're currently delivering. Let's step up
2: to the challenge. Michael. Um,
5: You asked the question before about do we all believe that people being housed and having adequate shelter... Is a right? And we all nodded and said, yes, we agree with that. It's not true. All of us here walk up Collins Street, the wealthiest real estate in Melbourne, and step over homeless people, not at nighttime where they might be getting food out of a van, but now during the day. If you walk up Burt Street at any time during the day, I counted last week, 14 people sleeping in doorways during the day, and we have decided that that's okay, that we live with it. Now, Sally says we have a plan and it's enormously important that capital cities are engaged in this and show leadership. But we can't do this without a plan and a resource base. So two things have to follow. If we don't have a plan, how do we know if we're being successful? Because we could be going anywhere. So we need a plan and a long-term plan to be able to do this and it won't be about one or two or three things. It will be about a range of things, as Christina was saying, the impact on housing markets. Remember, it's only eight years ago where Tony Abbott, as prime minister, came here and said in a, in a prime ministerial and premier forum that the Commonwealth had no role in housing because it wasn't mentioned in the constitution. <laughs> the constitution equally doesn't mention the internet, or international trade, or a variety of other things. But we've allowed that psychology to develop that somehow it's everybody else's problem. Yes, we all believe, but what do we do? Um, So I'm an advocate for the community housing sector. Um, Last year, before the federal election, we know there needs to be a plan, there isn't a plan, so we wrote a plan. Now, the plan isn't perfect, but it's 96% right. There's not much you would disagree on it. So can we take the, um, the cover off and somebody could say that would be the plan. And in my, um, in my organization, the organization I work for, we met with um, Nathan today. We have committed to $72 million worth of debt. And on our plans, um, we expect to put in for another $80 million in the next seven months. So in our organization, there's $160 million of debt, which previously would have been on in, in state expenditure on their accounts. Now, community housing isn't the only answer, but there is no doubt it is central to every plan that anybody anywhere has written. These institutions are in, are in their early stages, but as the minister said, they're no longer um, neighborhood knitting clubs. The organisations now have a billion dollars worth of assets, they've got professional staff, and, um, and Christina, with, with the development industry, the land industries, the designers, the constructions, and the funders, we have the ability to generate a new industry and a fill-up to the industry in the long term. So the community housing sector it not, it no longer has potential. It has enormous results. It has its own challenges. And we look forward to working in government and individually to producing supply because at the end of the day, everybody needs a home.
2: So I'm going to take that as a applause and thank you. Um, for our panellists, because I've stretched your indulgence. We've gone a bit over time, but I think Michael wants to say some closing words on behalf of Housing Choices Australia. So, is that right?
5: <laughs> R- very quickly, um, on behalf of the board, we have various directors here this evening. Our chair, Heather McCallum, um, um, Fabian Michaud, our uh, vice chair, um, Meredith Thedwell, a range of people that you know, Meredith Sussex. And I. Uh, I uh, the whole organisation is committed to being part of the sector in Victoria and Australia, that is part not only of a service organization, but is part of a movement. This is about economic and social change. It is about more than just building houses. It's about statements about the kind of neighborhoods we want, the way we want to live, and holding ourselves up as an advanced civilized culture. The sector wants to be part of this. Housing Choices is grateful for your interest this evening, and we look forward to working with you in the future. Thank you again for your attention. Please thank our panelists. And sorry, can I ask you to put your hands together one more time for Peter? Peter, Peter has been an outstanding contributor, leader, and commentator, and has done a brilliant job this evening. Thank you, Peter.
0: You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast: conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.